Welcome to Gravity, a podcast on the environment and human rights issues from the local to the global. There are over 1,225 hate and extremist groups active in this country, and that's only the ones we know about. Many of these groups do not expressly advocate for hate, but pander themselves out as rights groups. Yet they fundamentally manipulate the concept of rights. Your rights stop at the point they seek to infringe on other people's rights. These so-called religious and parental rights groups are not seeking to protect their rights, but to encroach on other people's rights. So-called parental rights groups are exacerbating the problems of our under-resourced public education systems. They are in essence anti-inclusion groups that seek to disrupt school governance, ban books and censor thought, impeding and obstructing education for every child. PEN America has reported that book bans are increasing, with 874 titles banned in the 2022 to 2023 school year alone. Texas and Florida are leading the bans. Some titles that have been banned in school districts in the past few years include 1984, The Slaughterhouse-Five, Push, The Colour Purple, The Bluest Eye, All Boys Aren't Blue and Tango Makes Three, The Handmaid's Tale and Gender Queer. Book bans disproportionately affect Black and LGBTQ authors. But the success of these grassroots movements, such as the expanding chapters of Mums for Liberty, is not all foreboding because if they can organise, so can we. We need to stand up, galvanise and voting candidates to school boards that will ensure that our schools remain open, inclusive spaces that expand our children's minds and teach them to think critically. We need to vote in representatives that will protect and promote a participatory, pluralistic, polyglossic, open and equitable democracy. We not only need to be active in exposing and advocating against radicalization, but also, as Susan Cork says in the forthcoming interview, to inoculate against it. We need to address the pathologies of our current society and seek to understand, empathize, and help vulnerable people, in particular youth, who are targeted by radical groups. We can't just treat the symptoms of this disease. We need to treat the cause and we need to inoculate against it. The Intelligence Project at the Southern Poverty Law Centre releases an annual report exposing extremists and hate groups across our country, detailing their means and methods. In January, I interviewed Susan Cork, Director of the Intelligence Project, and Lisa Borden, Senior Policy Counsel for International Advocacy at the Southern Poverty Law Centre, on its most recently published hate report and the polarisation and radicalisation tattering the tapestry of our country. Welcome to Gravity, Susan and Lisa. Thanks so much for having us. Happy to be here. Thank you. Can you please tell our audience about the Southern Poverty Law Center and the advocacy, research, and litigation that you do? Sure. Thank you, Alexandra. Um, So for more than 50 years, the Southern Poverty Law Center has been tracking, exposing, and countering hate and extremism in America. Um, And that has been a combination of a litigation strategy to go after the people who are undermining civil rights and democracy in America. It has involved an advocacy strategy to be um, trying to undo structural racism in this country that are enshrined in law and policy. Um, And the department that I oversee, which is the Intelligence Project, um, that publishes the annual Year in Hate and Extremism, which is a flagship 
publication for the organization. It details the scope and danger of hate um, and anti-government extremist groups operating in the United States. Um, it's through the research and data of an amazing team of expert researchers. Uh, this report uh, is designed to offer a co comprehensive understanding of the landscape of hate in America to inform the public and policymakers. We've also been evolving it so it can actually be a, an advocacy tool for community leaders um, to push back against hate and extremism and to be informed about how they can be part of protecting democracy. Just to add a little historical perspective, when the Southern Poverty Law Center was founded in the 70s, it was essentially a law firm that was suing organizations like the KKK. And um, it, it has grown you know, exponentially over that time to include uh, what we now identify as our four impact area, areas broadly that, um, that cover all the different work that we do. Fighting extremism, of course, as Susan has already talked about, but also decriminalization and decarceration of black and brown people, um, voting rights, and eradicating poverty. Yep. All very important and also interconnected issues. Um, so the annual report that you mentioned uh, by the Intelligence Project of your organization uh, is quite detailed. It's, I think it was like 75 pages. I read the uh, 2022 report that you released last year. and. Um, it is quite disturbing to read this 523 hate and 702 anti-government extremist groups. Mm -hmm. But also on the positive side, the fact that you can actually detail these groups and their tactics that um, if we don't know about them, we can't uh, figure out how to work um, against them. So that's, uh, that's very uh, important work. Um, so could you define um, for our audience, please, how you define these groups, how you identify them, and uh, some of the research that you do to be able to identify these groups and their tactics? Sure. Um, so we define a, a hate group as a um, group that is takes action, and this is important, in a calendar year. So that's why it's an annual report um, to against um, individuals or groups of people for their inalienable um, characteristics of race, um, gender, ethnicity, religion, etc. cetera. Um, and so they have to actively do something in that given year. So we have a team of researchers um, who are monitoring and, you know, in some of these dark spaces, um, these groups ranging from, um, we have a number of different, we call them ideology desks. So one thing that's unique to SPLC is we're, that we're looking at the ideology that is driving um, these different groups. What is it that is fueling their hatred? Um, so we have a, a desk that's looking at white supremacy and white power movements. Those are the neo-Nazi groups, um, the Ku Klux Klan types of groups. Um, then we have um, a team that is focused on what we call, for lack of a better word, more mainstream. They're the ones that have kind of more benign names that are trying to operate um, and fuel uh, hatred into kind of more mainstream policy spaces. And oftentimes those are the anti-LGBT groups that have really, um, you know, been growing in, in force over the past uh, few years, in particular um, anti-Semitic groups. There's general hate groups. Um, and then we have another category, which is the anti-government extremist groups. Um, and those groups um, include militias, 
um, constitutional sheriffs, groups that believe that um, are, are looking essentially to overthrow the U.S. government and believe that, um, you know, they trade in conspiracy theories, it's, you know, group, cons- QAnon type conspiracy theories. Um, so those are the three categories that we're tracking, and that's why we have it divided into two lists, one being the hate group list, one being the anti-government extremist list. I'd like to focus on the anti-government groups first, and in particular, um, constitutional sheriffs. Now, these so-called constitutional sheriffs um, think that they have more power than the president, it seems, in the counties. Is that correct? Yeah, and actually, I live in Frederick, Maryland, and we have the dubious honor of having somebody who, um, you know, has been part of this constitutional sheriff's movement. Um, and yes, they believe that the sheriffs are um, the you know the highest power that they don't have to um, subscribe to the the federal government, um, and you know, oftentimes are connected with um, the, these militia groups as well. Right, because of course sheriffs are Article One of our Constitution, mm-hmm. and therefore they can. <laughs> do it. Where, where do they get these ideas from? It's like the Wild West, you know. <laughs> it, I mean, in in many ways, it is. <laughs> uh, yeah, and you know, I mean, these uh, to classify them together, you know, we, we we characterize both sets of groups, the hate groups and the anti-government extremist groups, as. Um, hard right, anti-democratic hard right. Um, and, you know, so while there's, you know, important differences in, in the ideologies, you know, there are, you know, real overlaps that, you know, as we saw during um, the, the past couple of years in um, the, you know, the insurrection, of course, and then the Stop the Steel movement, these very groups with, you know, seemingly very different ideologies were willing to come together um under one sort of movement that was, you know, seeking to undermine what we see as, uh, you know, the the vision for America of multiracial inclusive democracy. Um, to go back to the constitutional sheriffs, though, um, you know, in particular, and this goes to the Wild West, it, it goes back to the belief that the county and not state or federal government should control land within the borders. Um, so that that's why you know kind of the wild west ideology uh, uh, uses kind of like an interesting one there, and then there's also those the county sheriffs the, in terms of the ultimate law enforcement authority in the United States, um, you know, which is I think where you know I mentioned Frederick Maryland, um, our sheriff who's been elected several times um, and is under is facing charges. Um, that you know, so so that's where the our sheriff um, comes into the anti-government movement. Yeah, and and uh, moving to um, hate groups. In reading your report, it seemed that um, a lot of these groups that um, are hate groups because they want to uh, encroach upon the rights of other people and deny them their identities and expressions of personality um, and basic uh, human dignity. Um, but they don't identify, you know, expressly advocate that they're hate groups. In fact, they say it's all about their rights, right? It's their parental rights or their religious rights. And particularly with respect to religious advocacy, we do have freedom of religion, but 
freedom of religion stops within your own personal zone. It doesn't mean that you get to impose your religion on other people. And in fact, the First Amendment has an express anti-establishment clause. So it's uh, unconstitutional what they're doing and also uh, just morally repugnant. Um, so what is the threat that we're seeing? Because there, it seems that religious advocacy and in particular um, so-called Christian, because many Christians I think have a more loving, open and accepting uh, view of the world than um, this particular version of Christianity. But um, I am concerned that the anti-abortion uh, legislation and the uh, anti-LGBTQ legislation that we're seeing cropped up is um, supported by this so-called Christian movement. Yeah, and that's an important distinction that you make there, Alexandra. Of course, the vast, vast majority of any religious adherence, whether it's Christianity or um, Islam or Judaism, are good, deeply good people who believe in the rights of other people. So that that is not, to be very clear, because that is often something that uh, groups that fall into the extremist hate group categories will deliberately conflate. Um, what we're talking about is groups that are explicitly calling for the exclusion or harm of people based on, um, you know, their their characteristics of race or gender, um, sexual orientation, and, you know, particular focus on the sexual orientation. And what we've seen um, by using this uh, kind of banner and trying to present themselves as mainstream, they have been remarkably um, effective at, at infiltrating mainstream policy spaces. Um, and again, to, to just kind of put a point on what they're actually calling for, it is believing that America should be a white Christian nation, that others in the country who are not white or Christian should be lesser than. They should have less rights. Most extreme version of that ideology is literally believing that they want a, a white ethno state and that that should be achieved by violence. So it all shares this ideology on, on the hard right, those that fall under this umbrella of white supremacy ideologies. The goal is a white Christian nation. The tactics and the level of extremity of those views and how they express that, whether it's in policy, um, whether it's in trying to take over the school boards, whether it's you know creating a a camp and training for a, you know an armed insurrection, um, the the ideology um, has similarity across those groups that use different tactics for that goal. Right. And, and Lisa, what is your take on uh, this religious advocacy that is targeting reproductive rights and um, advocating for an ethno state and targeting uh, the LGBTQ community as well? Yeah, certainly. I, I, of course, agree with everything that Susan has said. Um, but I think it's it, one thing I really want to focus on and amplify that she mentioned is the the mainstreaming of these views. Um, it's really unfortunate that, you know, over the last several years, um, a lot of this rhetoric that used to be, you know, limited to the extremist spaces has become um, mainstream political discourse and something that is being normalized um, by, you know, politicians, um, public officials, 
engaging with these groups, uh, repeating their rhetoric, and and that's really disturbing. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we are always calling for is for public officials, especially, to um, not only to not to not platform these organizations by by not participating in them, using the rhetoric, but to actually speak out against it. It's very important that the public hear um, our public officials say that these these views are wrong and unacceptable and that we're not going to uh, allow them to you know, seep further into public life. I also think it's really important to note that, you know, while we have uh, organizations here that especially in our states are driving a lot of the state legislation um, that's they're banning books and talking about, you know, banning criti- so-called critical race theory in schools and, um, you know, creating very difficult situations for transgender children and, and um, families with same-sex parents and so on. Um, they're doing those things here, but a lot of them also are actively abroad in other countries that don't have the same constitutional protections that we have. Um, that we have for now, uh, actually boosting movements to criminalize same-sex relationships, to criminalize transgender people, even in some places, um, put you know, supporting calls for the death penalty. Um, and you know, it, those things are far flung now. But if they continue to succeed with that rhetoric here. Um, you can bet that they'll be seeking criminalization here at some point too. Um, so it's important to keep our eye on what these people and these groups are doing outside the U.S. as well. Right. And the SBLC documents this rise of pseudoscience, right? And trying to discredit the LGBT community. And this is right in line with what you were saying about banning books and discriminating against uh, the LGBTQ community and in particular students. What information can you provide to our audience about this rise of pseudoscience and how it is being promoted in mainstream politics as well, and particularly in the South, how it is uh, supporting legislation that effectively discriminates We've spent decades advancing rights to now be facing their peril in the South. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, we put out a a report recently that we're hoping can um, really help people understand this issue Um, because you mentioned pseudoscience and the goal of pseudoscience is to present itself as scientific. Um, So the, this really dangerous, disgusting rise in anti-LGBTQ um, mobilization, I'd say, on on the hard right, which is being weaponized, so weaponized against LGBTQ persons on every level, and it is a deliberate strategy. So you're right; it is happening um, in courts across the country with um, cases to exclude LGBTQ persons from public life. It is happening at schools, um, you know, violence or intimidation at, uh, you know, story hours in front of libraries. I mean, the, it is just wide sweeping. And um, to your point, the uh, part of that effort is also pseudoscience, where they um, put out these gross fake um, reports that claim um, 
very, I, I don't even want to give them, you know, <laughs> wider, wider amplification, but very gross, um, fake scientific theories that are meant to um, demonize and have um, the, it, it seem as if LGBTQ uh, persons are are sick or damaged in some way. And so we put to, we recently re- released a report um, that debunks a lot of those conspiracy theories and, and puts together the actual science and, and shows why um, uh, those on the hard right that use these strategies are trying to do so. And, and um, hopefully will help us all um, to fight back against this. And I, I spoke a couple months ago, there was a, um, uh, a symposium on the Hill with the Equality Caucus and another a number of LGBTQ um, activist groups um, and medical professionals. Um, and, and that's where, you know, I think having medical professionals, you know, sh- show that the, the pseudoscience theories have nothing behind them, that the um, care that people are receiving um, is uh, very ethical and, you know, very appropriate. That is a very important report um, to debunk these fake theories. And uh, I note on your website that you have a number of uh, articles on this issue and that you've been working on it for a while. Um, I did want to move to um, parental rights groups. Of visceral importance to our society is education. And unfortunately, uh, we are... um, sorely letting down our youth with um, inadequate resources for public education. But also now there's this new threat of parental rights groups like Moms for Liberty that are uh, just causing an absolute nuisance to um, student board um, governance. And as you said earlier, Lisa, they're banning books in the guise of their rights. They are not only denying other parents' rights and their children's rights, but they're also denying their own children a proper education. <laughs> they're amputating the education of their own children. If you could detail more about groups such as Moms for Liberty and how they're hampering our already perilous education system for our audience, please. Yeah. And, you know, this is a group we, we've been tracking um, since their origins in Florida a couple of years ago. Um, and I, I mentioned, you know, it's been a deliberate tactic by the hard right to be um, going after schools. And, and that's not actually new. It's been a tactic that has um, arisen in the past to go after public education, go after inclusive education. Um, so that's why, you know, we've categorized them as a anti-government group because, you know, what they're actually calling for um, is an end to public education. They would like to abolish um, the Department of Education. And I, you know, they're calling themselves Moms for Liberty. I'm the mo- I'm a mother. I have a daughter who is uh, has a white mother and an African-American Muslim father. And what they are calling for is to have schools that would not include her. So it's not about parent rights. It's that they are wanting to say that my daughter is not welcome with their white children. Um, They are calling for schools where LGBTQ persons are not accepted and that other people can't be reading about um, people who have beliefs different than their own. They've uh, encountered the Moms for Liberty has encountered um, 
a little bit of trouble recently based on their own hypocrisy. It seems like what they do in their own homes is a little different than what they want to see happening um, in other people's homes. But uh, (laughs) I'll leave it there. But just to say that, um, you know, what we are fighting for is a school system, a public school system, taxpayer funded school system where every child has the same right to a good quality, inclusive education. And every child sees themselves in the school system and in the history and the future of America. Yes. And and it's not just these groups. It's also governments like the Florida government is denying books to children at the same time as it's propagating um, their ideology down children's throats. I think they have these videos that they paid for that I watched some of them. It's they're horrible. I mean, they, they were advocating for how um, actually, you know, slavery wasn't that bad because it taught, I don't know, use of tools. Or so. I mean, it's just preposterous. It's revisionist history in, in all the um, wrong terms. But Lisa, if you may please comment on what you think about these parental rights groups and how they're affecting mainstream politics. I think that, you know, it's it's been interesting um, to watch how the the shift in tactics, not just by the parental rights groups, but I, I think by far right, extreme far right um, activists generally that, you know, having captured uh, a very vocal group of members of Congress, having captured a lot of um, red state legislatures they really have begun to focus more on local politics and taking over things like school boards and, you know, city councils and um, really, you know, finding other ways to, um, to force their views down people's throats. Um, And in, in terms of the parental rights groups and education, as Susan mentioned, it really is part of a much larger strategy that's been going on for quite some time to try to drive public education out of existence. Um, and, and that's, you know, this is the latest weapon in that attack, but it's part and parcel of, you know, the, the drastic underfunding of schools, the, um, the kind of uh, the other sorts of control that very conservative school um, boards and state and state education departments have um, have imposed on education policy and on instruction. Um, and one of the things, in fact, one of the things that we've been working on and and um, and uh, reporting on in the last few years has been the real inequities in public education funding, uh, where if you look at, particularly in, in um, SPLC's region, if you look at the way schools are funded uh, largely by property taxes, um, it, it leads almost automatically to schools in poorer areas, which are much less white, um, being grossly underfunded. And that has been been made dramatically worse by the rise of education vouchers where money's being taken out of the public education space for people to go to private schools, which are highly, highly segregated. Um, So all of this is, you know, a a very broad based attack on public education. 
Right. So it seems that the structure of the tax system is supporting uh, denial of uh, public education to marginalized groups in our communities. Absolutely. And then the other thing we, we have devoted a lot of attention to, um, and you can find reports about this on our website as well, is the huge dis- racial disparities in school discipline and policing, um, where, you know, students of color are dramatically more likely to be suspended and expelled from schools, um, dramatically more likely to be subjected to corporal punishment in schools and um, to be uh, have police and in, get involved in their, you know, alleged misconduct at school. In, in we've seen cases in the South of, you know, very young children being arrested um, for just really preposterous, you know, minor incidents. I'm, I'm talking about children five, six, seven years old actually being arrested by school officers. And what this leads to is a, is a lot of um, black and brown children dropping out of school and winding up not being able to complete their education. So again, it, it's all part of, you know, the, the same, the same broad attack. Right. So there seems to be a school to prison pipeline. And then also there's this very disturbing um, rise of utilizing mental health issues or and issues that aren't even mental health. I believe it was what an eight year old that uh, was upset about not being able to do something and they threw a stuffed toy at their teacher. I mean, it's a stuffed animal. And then they were taken for psychiatric interrogation and examination uh, for, what, 72 hours without their parents' consent? I believe that these laws are being used predominantly on people of color, children of color, and young children. And so this is, you're right, this is a criminalization and uh, marginalization um, that is still continuing. And can you tell our audience more about the use of the Baker laws? The psychiatric. Yeah, I'm not sure that I'm not really particularly an expert on that. Um, We do have uh, some people in our children's rights litigation section who have done a lot of work around that. um, And and that, of course, is also available on our website. Uh, But I do know that um, one of the things that has happened is that there have been a lot more um, children of color who have been subjected to um, involuntary um, psychiatric treatment to, to involuntary hospitalization, um, children who are in juvenile detention who um, are already more, much more likely to be children of color who are being subjected to involuntary psychiatric treatment. Yeah, we stand uh, with the privilege of being the sole nation in the world um, that hasn't ratified the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. Um, and we continue to um, deny human rights to children. Um, we separate children from their parents, and again, mostly uh, marginalized groups. Um, and we <laughs> don't provide proper education. And there's, as you mentioned, there's the school to uh, the prison pipeline with um, criminalization of marginalized groups. Um, the, the Southern Poverty Law Center 
has um, done quite a lot of research and advocacy and also um, has uh, initiated litigation in support of uh, children's rights and prisoner rights. It was in 2012. So it took all the way up to 2012. Um, there was a joint decision by the Supreme Court, I think Miller and Miller and Hobbs, that it was unconstitutional to give uh, life without parole sentences for minors um, under the Eighth Amendment. Um, however, we still uh, denied children uh, proper rights, both in how we criminalize their actions and how we sentence them, and then the conditions of their incarceration. The Southern Poverty Law Center has detailed the horrific conditions in the Angola prison in Louisiana, and it seems you've had a bunch of successes there. Um, if you could just detail what happened there in particular, and also just in, in general, youth prison rights in the South. Yeah, um, well, there are actually a couple of different things um, concerning Angola and concerning concerning prisons in the South in general that we've been really focused on, but but um, particularly about youth. Um, last year, there was a group of um, youth who had been in one of the juvenile detention centers in Louisiana who were rather unceremoniously moved to the Angola State Prison Penitentiary, which is an adult male prison. And, um, you know, I think it's important to understand as background that that it's called Angola because it's on the side of a former plantation that was um, that was called Angola. And um, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. But um, these children were taken from the juvenile detention facility. They were nearly all young black boys. Um, and they were put on what had formerly been a death row unit at Angola. And um, there was a, a quite a bit of litigation over this because of, uh, you know, obviously just taking children and putting them in that environment, especially on what they all knew was a death row unit um, is, is horrific in and of itself. But then again, in addition to that, the, the conditions there were terrible. Um, they were not getting proper education services that they were entitled to under the law. Um, so there was a lot of litigation around that, which, which a number of groups were engaged in, including the SPLC. Um, and it took quite a while to get an order um, to take those children out of Angola. Uh, but but that, did, that did ultimately happen. Um, they were moved. And um, unfortunately, some of them, I think, were moved to a, a, at least a different adult facility, but not something as horrible as Angola. Um, but, you know, the state has continued to um, assert that it has a right to do that. Um, and, and so I, I would be concerned about the, the potential for repetition. But another thing that we've been focused on at Angola is the solitary confinement conditions. And this applies both to youth and to adults. There's in this country as a whole, there is a really dramatic overuse of solitary confinement. And um, I mean, I think, you know, people, people probably believe, and the US government tries to assert that solitary confinement is something that's only used, you know, sort of as a last resort when it's absolutely necessary. But in fact, um, you know, tens of thousands of people across the country are held in solitary confinement on any given day. It is um, 
many of them for not just for a few days or a couple of weeks, but for months, sometimes years. Um, and this is a violation of international law, um, which under which more than 15 days in solitary confinement is considered to be torture. Um, but, uh, but we do it all the time. And not only do we do it um, just generally to adult incarcerated people, but also to, to juvenile incarcerated people and to people who, are, who have serious mental illnesses. And the suicide rates in these solitary confinement units are, are sky high. And it's really a, a terrible, gross violation of people's human rights. Yeah, it is. It really is. Going back to the report, 2022, I'm wondering um, what were the most uh, utilized tactics by hate groups and anti-government extremist groups? And did you find any different trends in these tactics from prior years? Yes, good question. And, you know, the difference, of course, was Trump was now out of office, right? So, um, you know, in the wake of Trump not being in office, many of these groups had grown accustomed to have having a main line right into the White House. Um, they had gotten access that they'd never had before to have, you know, uh, somebody sharing white supremacy ideology sitting in the White House is just unprecedented that you had Trump saying, stand back and stand by to the Proud Boys, that you had, um, you know, all of the many crimes he is now facing trial on. Um, so after that, um, instead of uh, disbanding the uh, new strategy um, that we outlined in the report in 2022, um, is that these groups really took um, to be highly localized and focus on at the community level. Um, and what, you know, so groups like the Proud Boys, um, uh, we're really operating at the local level. And so instead of um, immediately, they've now faced troubles and, you know, are starting to fracture. But, um, you know, in the earlier part of that year, they actually were really growing in size and influence and became much more enmeshed in, in politics at the local level, um, had strange bed of fellows like Moms for Liberty. They started to get involved in the fights for the school boards. Um, really trying to intimidate too at the local level because you know they come armed and um, in their signature uniforms, trying to look very intimidating and scary in places like schools, yeah. you know, in front of, like schools and libraries. Um, so that the very deliberate tactic was to intersect people in their daily lives of democracy to intimidate um, people, uh, elections, schools. Um, and the message was clear that they wanted people um, to feel afraid um, in living and and trying to you know enjoy democracy. And so that was one of the big trends that we saw. Um, the other thing, you know, as we've already talked about, um, really politicizing and coming together. They you know trying to keep together the unity coming off of the Stop the Steal movement and transferring that very deliberately into an anti-LGBTQ strategy, um, into an anti-critical race theory strategy to keep um, this white supremacy ideology continuing to influence and infect the mainstream um, Republican Party. Yeah. In detailing what these groups are doing, how they're thinking, and not only in what they're doing externally, but how they're thinking 
internally. Um, I'm wondering whether kicking people off major platforms and then having them go into their own platforms where they're invariably uh, more radicalized because they don't see any other information and they're in this echo chamber, does that make it harder to document? And how do you detail that? Where, where are they going? What platforms are they using? What are they saying? Yeah. And I mean, when you get to the, when we start talking about solutions, what's challenging is we do live in two very different information ecosystems right now. We are very divided as a country. um, And there are two competing visions of what America should be. Um, One is our vision of a multiracial inclusive democracy where everybody is afforded rights and access to the American dream. The other vision is one where it is a white Christian ethnostate that privileges um, white people above all others, seeking to roll back all the progress made since the civil rights era. Um, So it is true, like we are um, in different information ecosystems. Um, It has been harder to track and the the internet has changed everything. And we saw a real... um, intensification of that during the pandemic, because you had a lot of the drivers of radicalization, um, particularly for young people. You had um, the fear of this pandemic. You had people not in school. You had them home. You had them online more. And you had the parents not able, um, overwhelmed and not able to be paying as much attention. Um, So, you know, that was something that we have been studying. And when we talk a little bit about um, you know, what we think can be done to start addressing that. But um, you're right, it does. it is more difficult to track. And while we still track hate and extremist groups, um, the trend is that it's not necessarily the case that those that hold these beliefs are card-carrying members of these groups. It is much more fluid and intersecting than that. So, you know, we have been enhancing our capacity at SPLC to be um, able to track Um, across the digital frontier and understand how extremist actors are exploiting the online landscape. Where are they, you know, where are they congregating? How are they getting funding? Um, We've increased our capacity to be kind of tracking the dark money flows and seeing what the, what the intersections are. Um, Where are they amplifying it? Who, you know, where are their political, you know, we also have been tracking, you know, where, um, political figures and political leaders are are amplifying those messages and, and feeding them into the political bloodstream. Um, so yeah, it's become a much more complicated landscape. Does make our job um, more difficult, but we have been trying to um, invest in our capacity to be um, still understanding um, the full landscape of hate, even as that landscape is is changing. I want to now turn to. The fact that uh, systemic racism, as we've discussed, uh, very much continues in our society and that um, the history of redlining has led to uh, massive infrastructure issues for uh, important services such as water uh, and that many cities are actually denied proper water in our country. So richest country in the world, and yet uh, state capitals um, don't have access 
uh, to water. And one such state capital I'm talking about is uh, Jackson, Mississippi. So people have heard of Flint, Michigan. Flint, Michigan, a predominantly black city. I think a lot of people think that uh, people went to jail for that, but actually no one is in jail. No one actually went to jail for uh, the poisoning of this city. And the criminal negligence actually started with the fact that the people were disenfranchised and there was an emergency manager and not the mayor that was in charge. Over half of the emergency managers appointed in Michigan were in predominantly um, black cities. And it is, it's not even making the news. Flint made the news in part because there was uh, a focus on also the white population that was denied water. I wonder whether that has something to do with the fact that you don't really hear about Jackson, Mississippi, a state capital um, that's uh, a predominantly black city that has um, one of the highest water bills and no access to fresh water. I don't even have words as to how disgusting and disappointing that is that this is happening. Uh, And uh, doesn't seem like the state government is doing anything to help these people, and I think recently is increasing water bills for water people country. So I was just wondering if you could detail more about um, the center's work in um, the water rights area and economic justice. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the important thing um, to know about the Jackson issue, well, there's a many, many, but, but one of them is that if you think about patterns, you know, this is definitely part Uh, of a pattern in which um, cities that become Black-led and majority Black wind up having um, their authority stepped on, usurped um, by um, majority White state legislatures. And in Jackson's case, uh, you know, they they made the the Black leadership of Jackson tried for years to get the money that was needed to make um, improvements to rebuild portions of the water infrastructure and just were continually impeded by the state legislature, by the governor, successive governors. And not until, you know, things completely fell apart and the federal government had to um, finally get involved did they get any sort of relief? And in fact, the state legislature was still, you know, when federal money started coming in, the state legislature was still trying to redirect some of that money. Um, but, you know, if you think about, um, and again, I'm, I'm talking really about our, our region of the southeastern United States, cities that have, that are majority black and have black leadership were created by white flight. And, you know, when schools were desegregated and white people who had resources, you know, streamed out of these cities, um, eventually they became majority black, were able to elect black leaders. And then even though most of the white population had moved out, they still wanted to maintain control. And so there have been all kinds of ways in which state legislatures have made sure that that the black leadership is hobbled. And, um, you know, they, they, they don't want black leadership to succeed and they do a lot of things to prevent that from happening. I mean, I, I live in Alabama. We've seen that in Birmingham where, um, 
the, you know, the black leadership of Alabama, our of Birmingham, Alabama has made a number of efforts to improve conditions for people who live in the city of Birmingham, which is majority black, such as, for example, um, passing a minimum wage law to, to raise the minimum wage within the city of Birmingham. State, state legislature comes in and passes a law that prevents that. Um, yeah, so, so those kinds of things um, are, are just constantly happening to um, majority black cities. Um, we also are looking at a number of um, water issues in other state cities in our region. For example, there's a city in Alabama that's going through um, a, a, a similar kind of failure of their water infrastructure. Several years ago, the um, United Nations Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty visited the U.S. and went to Lowndes County, Alabama, where he found that um, there was you know, raw sewage running through people's yards because of the lack of um, sewage infrastructure and people had hookworms, which, yes. you know, is something that you don't think of seeing in the United States. But but that happens in, in places um, that are majority black, especially because they don't get the same kind of attention and resources that um, wealthier, whiter communities get. Right. And that was Philip Alston that you were talking about, correct? Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. I, I interviewed him about his report a few years ago. <laughs> he was a professor of mine at NYU. Yeah, that is quite uh, deplorable, isn't it? That people lack fresh water and sanitation um, and that hookworm is only, um, you only see it in places in the South in the US and um, the lowest uh, economic uh, developed countries Exactly. We have uh, medicine for this, but um, it's <laughs> we make it very expensive, and so we deny it to people. So it's uh, it's it's deplorable. Um, I want to talk about, and again, everything that we're talking about is interconnected. So the systemic racism is the denial of proper education. Uh, proper infrastructure and that's sanitation, fresh water. And then we're looking at uh, voting rights and we talked about disenfranchisement. So um, last year um, you released a report on uh, the uh, 10th year anniversary of the Supreme Court decision, um, Shelby County versus Holder. So that decision found that uh, Section 4B's uh, coverage formula uh, of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 for, pre- for federal preclearance um, of um, voting procedures for counties with a history of discrimination was unconstitutional and that Congress was required to legislate a new formula. Now, Congress has not done so and um, it doesn't really appear that it's likely to do so in the near future, unfortunately. Um, in the interim, we've had this plethora of voter suppression laws in the South can you detail what these uh, voter suppression laws are and, um, and the general impact that holders having on voting rights in the South? Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> they take so many different forms. And I, I, I do want to say that while the South is certainly ground zero for this, these, these laws have been passed in states across the country. So it's not, it's not limited to the Southeast. Um, but we have seen in our states laws that... Um, for example, have dramatically restricted the use of absentee ballots that have um, virtually done away with other forms of mail-in voting, have closed polling places and made it much more difficult for people to be able to access polling places. 
Um, in, in Georgia, for example, we, we saw a lot of polling places close, which resulted in very, very long lines in other places, the, the ones that remained. And for the Georgia legislature passed a law that made it a crime to provide food or water to people who were waiting in long lines at their polling places. Um, restricting the days of voting, um, for example, you, you think that that doesn't sound like uh, something that targets particular groups, but um, when you only allow voting on one Tuesday, you cut out a lot of lower income people who have jobs that don't allow them to have time off to vote. You cut out um, uh, souls to the polls programs, which is a huge thing at black churches in the South where they would take people to the polls to vote when, when they were available on, on, you know, other days of the week. Um, and, and so there's just, you know, a, a wide variety of, of things that um, are, are depressing voting rates, especially among people of colors and communities of color. And uh, the latest thing is efforts to criminalize people um, for a variety of things. I, I mentioned one, providing food and water, but another example is helping people with their absentee ballots. Um, you know, there's laws that's, that criminalize people and organizations that would um, collect absentee ballots from people who are, you know, have difficulty turning them in themselves. For example, people with disabilities, elderly people who are homebound, people in nursing homes. Um, they're, they're, you know, that prevents an awful lot of people from being able to vote who are making an effort to vote. Uh, and then in Florida, one of the things we saw, you know, a few, a couple of years ago, Florida voters um, passed a ballot initiative that reinstated the voting rights of, of thousands of people who um, had been disenfranchised because they were formerly incarcerated for felony convictions. And uh, almost immediately, the Florida legislature came back and said, well, um, okay, that ballot initiative has passed, but those people have to pay off all of their outstanding and court-related fines and fees before they can be reinstated. And in many cases, that's a lifetime ban because you're talking about, you know, even if it's just a few hundred dollars, people may never have the ability to pay, but oftentimes it's thousands of dollars. And so they may never get their voting rights back. But even some of the people um, who thought that they were in a position because of that ballot initiative to be allowed to vote went to their registrars, were allowed to register to vote, and then were arrested for attempting to vote. And, you know, it turned out that under some draconian rules, they, they didn't actually have the right, but even the registrars didn't understand that. Um, so those are the kinds of things that, you know, it scares people away who may very well be eligible to vote and should have been allowed to vote, but they're not going to try because it's frightening. And you don't want to take the risk. Right. Even though we have the 15th Amendment. <laughs> the SPLC, along with other organizations, is actively working to prevent disenfranchisement and helping people vote. Can you tell our audience more about the work of the Voting Rights Practice Group and how you're combating uh, voter suppression? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we, we have been engaged in litigation in, in all of our states uh, over some of these restrictive voting laws. Uh, we also have been working um, 
to register people, help people who are especially formerly incarcerated people to understand uh, their reinstatement rights and try to get them reinstated when they're eligible because a lot of states have changed um, the eligibility rules and people may think that they don't have the right to vote, but they do and we can help them with that. Um, We also have been working uh, a lot in litigation around the um, redistricting process because as you probably know, one of the thing that things that, again, has happened in many parts of the country but has been particularly bad in the Southeast has been the racial gerrymandering of, um, of voting districts that has um, diluted the voting power of black and brown communities and, and you know, basically ensured that white candidates um, have an advantage. And we have had a lot of good success in a lot of that litigation. Of course, recently the Supreme Court uh, required the state of Alabama in the Milligan case uh, to redraw the districts that um, had failed to um, recognize the growth in the black population in the U.S. And I mean, for people that don't understand the way the way that districting works is that it's based on the census And so every 10 years when the census is done, then districts are supposed to be redrawn to better reflect changes in in demographics. And uh, in Alabama, the the majority of the growth was uh, among the black population. And despite that, new districts that were drawn didn't, didn't give another, a second district in which black people would have the majority and potentially be able to Um, elect someone of their choosing. And, you know, we had to go through all kinds of litigation, get a Supreme Court ruling to um, overturn that. And then um, still the legislature tried to not do it. And the the court had to come back in and and do it itself because the the legislature wouldn't go along. Um, But the thing that people also need to realize is that in all of these states where ultimately the courts found that uh, districts had been racially gerrymandered and needed to be redrawn were allowed because of the Supreme Court's delay to be used in the 2022 midterm elections. And so if you if you look through all of the states where there should have been a majority black or, has, or in Texas case, for example, a majority Hispanic um, additional district, you might not have the same control of, of the House of Representatives that you have now. Huh. Um, so it, it could have had, you know, a, a, a really huge impact on everything that could have been done in the first two years um, or, or in those two years, you know, where there, there might have been a, a different majority in Congress, a lot of legislation that has not been able to be passed, such as the Voting Rights Act the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act could have been passed. Where we have been involved on the intelligence project is um, helping to track um, uh, candidates who hold white supremacist beliefs um, and holding them accountable. Um, We have been helping to kind of bring information to how conspiracy theories to um, undermine um, belief in our voting system. So we've worked often hand in hand with them, although we haven't been um, fully engaged in the voting rights. We, you know, had a 
podcast where we told the stories of those who were fighting for voting rights. So what we've been trying to do is to try to amplify and tell the stories around that and put it into the context of how this is um, being manipulated by um, hateful actors to undermine trust in our election system. Um, And also, you know, another area that we've um, worked on is um, kind of the political violence aspect of it. So um, looking at the tactics um, at the local levels and helping to educate um, state actors, secretaries of state, um, attorney general, election officials um, to prepare them um, and help make them more safe by having the education on, you know, kind of what, what is happening. So we haven't um, in my team, we haven't directly engaged very much on the voting rights and the legislation part of it. We've been more looking at the conspiracy theories that are driving radicalization and um, hate actors to be um, undermining faith in our elections. All right. And in, when you inform the community of uh, hate groups that come in, like, for instance, the neo-Nazi uh, camp near Springfield, Maine, that uh, your report helped a local journalist uncover this camp and then the community rallied against it. And so these people couldn't vote in their community <laughs> uh, and they left uh, because they were unwelcome. But if you had not detailed the research in the first place, then perhaps uh, the local journalist wouldn't have been tipped off and she wouldn't have written her uh, great article, which I would linked to um, about this. And it's crazy that it's so in the open. In one way, they wanted to have their privacy because the community was against them. And in another way, they're building, I mean, this is, it was 2023, right? Okay, and now I'm thinking 2024, but a neo-Nazi camp, it's, it's a little hard to fathom. In this day and age, it's crazy, right? You know, when we had uncovered, there was a group, The Base, um, you know, in our podcast, we also exposed Um, That group had, you know, had an outpost. Um, We have had some recent reporting on activities in Tennessee. So these things are cropping up. But I mean, what we're trying to do is to make Berkeley Springs, West Virginia, there's a hate group castle there. So letting people know, you know, I mean, so that's, you know, as these hate groups are and um, affiliated actors are moving into local communities, we're trying to provide education and context so that people can protect themselves and to um, take action to keep their communities safe and inclusive. Yeah. And in order to be able to act, we need to know. So the information um, and the research that you do are integral. And it's not just expressions of hate, but we also have um, increasing violence and mass shootings in the U.S. I mean, it's it's a public health emergency in the United States. Uh, in 2021, we hit uh, a record of 686 mass shootings. In 2022, 636 were documented. And uh, last year, I believe we also had over 600. So that's more mass shootings than there are days per year in um, all the preceding years. And, of course, January in January this year, we've already had a number of mass shootings. Um, and partly it's the availability of guns. Uh, It's also inadequate mental health services, um, systemic problems in our society. But I don't think we can discount the heavy lobbying of the gun industry and its contribution to political campaigns. Um, The NRA is even so threatened um, 
that uh, in 96, it pushed the Dickey Amendment that um, effectively um, cut all funding to the CDC for gun research because the gun research would show that, um, yeah, people kill people with guns. Guns make it easier. Yeah. That's that's what they do. Um, now, we, that's no longer applicable, I think, that amendment, but um, we're in a worse situation now than we were in 96. So h- how did we get here? How do these hate groups also fuel these um mass shootings as well and radicalize people to do that? Um, So one area that we've been um, looking into and have a really excellent um, new study out is on how gun rights narratives are um, fueling a a radicalization pathway, um, you know, which is particularly disturbing amidst, um, you know, the, the number of hate crime incidents was astronomical in 2022, close to 12,000. Um, and of course, you know, substantial number um, targeted black people, anti-Hispanic, anti-LGBTQ. So you, we have this prevalence of guns in young people's lives, right? Then you have um, these hate group actors that are deliberately trying to radicalize people to take on their cause. Um, so this report that we did um, in partnership with Peril and Every Town for Gun Safety, um, as well as the University of Chicago, um, shows U.S. attitudes on guns. Um, it, and it was a survey of more than 4,000 young Americans between the ages of 14 and 30, um, as well as focus groups. And it shows the intersection between gun narratives with male supremacist, anti-government, and racial resentment beliefs. Um among other findings. And so you have this kind of cesspool of, um, you know, white supremacist ideologies that are, um, you know, have been actively supported and amplified by many of the big tech companies. Um, and then you have a culture where, you know, this report shows young people have very easy access to guns. Um, about 40% they have said they have somewhat easy access to guns. I mean, that's shocking. Um, school safety is a major concern for young people. More than half are worried about being shot at their school. So they see that this is possible and they're afraid. Um, and, uh, you know, the real life action that's so scary, especially, you know, as a mom, that the average person in the U.S. has seen someone injured or killed by a gun. And a disturbing percentage of students have been in an active shooter situation. So, um, you know, the translation between how these hateful ideologies, access to guns, um, conditions for radicalization are, are fueling, you know, an increase in hate crimes in this country is undeniable. Is there anything that we've missed and haven't covered about the latest report about 2022? Um, because, Susan, is there anything that you want to discuss about the report that I haven't asked you? Um I think I've covered the main trends and, you know, we're now um, in the midst of putting together our findings for um, 2023 as well. Um, You know, unfortunately there's been a continuation of that. Although um, I will say the accountability, you know, all of these trials against um, the uh, actors on January 6th, the insurrectionists, um, you know, their groups like the proud boys have faced severe consequences um, the group, the Oath Keepers, are facing long jail times. Um, you know, so having account of accountability and public accountability for um, these crimes that that is really important. Um, 
as well as, and you know, we haven't seen much of this on the Republican side, but public officials standing up and, and drawing the line and saying um, hate and extremism in our society is unacceptable. We're in a situation where we have an incredibly high number of hate crimes in this country. Once you have a hate crime, you've already lost. Um, so we've been wanting to really um, increase our efforts at SPLC to be focusing on the root causes of the problem and to be working toward prevention of radicalization and to hate and extremism and really focusing on a whole of community approach. Um, you know, this partnership um, with the Peril Laboratory at American University started during the pandemic with a simple understanding, as, as I talked about earlier, that the conditions for radicalization in the middle of a pandemic where kids were alone, scared and online a lot, um, were really serious and that um, we came together to develop a suite of resources, inoculation resources to have parents and caregivers understand um, how, how children could be radicalizing online and giving them tools to interrupt that cycle. And, you know, the we were really heartened by the findings that if parents, caregivers spent only seven minutes with this guide, that they were more than 80% prepared to identify the signs of radicalization and intervene effectively. So, you know, it seems like a, a no brainer. Why would you, you know, not try these sorts of resources that have been already showing great effect. So we continued and have really built that partnership and it's really based on evidence and based on um, victims and based on non-carceral approaches. So moving away from kind of the um, hate crimes and, putting people in jail and really trying to get at the root cause of the problem. Because people, particularly youth that are radicalized, they're troubled in the first place. And mm -hmm. if we simply push them away, they're just going to be further radicalized. It makes me think of years ago, there was the heinous terrorism attack against a government mm -hmm. building in Oklahoma City, which had um, a federal building, which had a daycare center by Timothy McVeigh. But he was a war hero that was completely traumatized by war and had requested help for PTSD and was denied um, and then was further radicalized. So you think, what would have happened if somebody had actually helped him? Mm -hmm. If we're ever going to move on, we need to address why this is happening and also address why perpetrators would be radicalized in the first place. So to be able to identify the signs and um, and be able to educate uh, people without uh, being punitive in the first place. Because then I think if you approach them from a punitive manner, they probably won't listen to you and will just be further radicalized. So I think it's instrumental to have these tools. And it's not just for parents. It's, um, it's for caregivers, educators. I think the, these are tools that schools should be using um, to train teachers to both identify the signs of radicalization and be able to, uh, as you said, inoculate students prior to any identification of signs, but also be able to um, help them uh, and educate them and open their eyes as to their manipulation um, by these hateful groups. Yeah, thank you for saying that, Alexandra. It is, you know, what you said is exactly, exactly right. And, you know, think you know, these extremists are trying to exploit online communications with these young people. And, you know, again, we use the inoculation analogy because it's a public health approach. You know, it really, the, the technique to inoculate them is to 
have them understand people don't like to be tricked. That's the kind of secret, the secret sauce to the inoculation is that if kids know that people are trying to trick them, um, that they develop resistance against it. Um, it's very powerful and very simple, but you know, we've been expanding that for teachers and caregivers, mental health professionals, um, as well as working on digital media literacy too, to, um, you know, give schools access to training and curriculum around that. Yeah, I think digital media literacy is very important. I know um, some states are making um, an, an effort to, um, well, uh, some states have actually legislated that uh, high school kids and middle school kids need to um, have courses in media literacy. California is instituting that. I think all states should follow suit um, because there, <laughs> there's a lot of corruption of facts. Um, and uh, if students um, were taught how to look at the narratives and understand that they're being given a story and not just plain facts um, and decode that, that would be um, very beneficial. Um, and uh, lastly, Lisa, I have a question for you about um, the fact that the U.S. lacks a National Human Rights Institute. Many countries have a national uh, Human Rights Institute, which monitors the government's compliance with the ICPR. Um, and it seems like it would be a very beneficial accountability mechanism for the U.S. to have. Why don't we have one? Is it likely that we're going to <laughs> have one in the near future? And uh, how beneficial would it be? Well, yeah. Um, so I think, you know, one of the things that SPLC has been doing over the last two to three years is uh raising a lot of the issues that we've talked about, most of the issues that SPLC works on, to international organizations like the United Nations. And I, I think, you know, part of the problem and the reason we don't have a national human rights institution is that many, many people in the United States are not even aware that uh, the U.S. is a party to three very important human rights, international human rights treaties that by and large are being ignored by the U.S. government. Um, and those include one that you mentioned already, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, um, which addresses a lot of the things we've talked about today, uh, the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, and um, the Convention Against Torture, which, which addresses, for example, the solitary confinement issue we talked about today. Um, but what has happened is, first of all, when the U.S. government finally ratified all of those treaties in the 1990s, they declared it, it declared them non-self-executing, which means that unless and until Congress passes legislation to incorporate them in U.S. domestic law, there's really no um, legal mechanism to enforce them. I mean, you can't go and sue someone for violating your rights under the one of these conventions in U.S. courts, um, for example. And, um, but also successive administrations, including Obama, including the current administration, have not required um, the requirements of these treaties to be incorporated in domestic policy either. So um, a really good example of that is that President Biden has issued now two orders on racial equity. And um, despite a lot of advocacy and even recommendations from the UN committee that oversees the Treaty on Racial Discrimination criticizing this, 
it has not, neither of those orders says a single word about our obligations under the treaty on racial discrimination and doesn't do anything to require um, federal agencies to try to implement them. So um, we and a large number of other organizations are devoting a fair amount of our advocacy to trying to move toward having a national human rights institution, which would be able to um, coordinate implementation of our obligations to monitor that implementation, to report on it, to identify um, areas, which are many where that's lacking uh, to help the government um, it, do that implementation and also to provide public education and training uh, about that, to try to push that education and training down to state governments. Um, so uh, you mentioned that other countries have these. In fact, more than 120 <laughs> other countries and nearly every other uh, democratic nation have national human rights institutions. Um, why doesn't the U.S. have one? Well, um, you know, a lot of that, I think, has to do with the the U.S. obsession with um, sovereignty and this, you know, this idea that um, some, you know, someone outside the U.S. government might try to tell us what to do. Um, and, and that's the reason why the treaties don't get uh, the, the attention that they need. And that's the reason I think why there's no infrastructure for implementing them. Um, I actually, I, I spoke about this at length recently at a, a, a webinar that was conducted by the um, International Association of Official Human Rights Agencies. And I can give you a link to that if people want to learn more about yeah, it. Yeah, that would be great. Um, but there is also now a, a newly launched website uh, for the campaign for National Human Rights Institution where people can learn more uh, about why we need one, what it is, how it would work, and what they could do to support that call. Because, um, you know, one of the things that we hear from the federal government, from the White House and from agencies, is that not, not that they're necessarily opposed to moving toward having an NHRI, but that this is not what they're hearing from people about. And as you know, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so we do need for there to be more awareness, uh, for people to, to understand this and start talking about it to their legislators, um, you know, telling, telling the president who's running for reelection yeah. that, that this is something that's important to them. Yeah, I think it would be extremely beneficial. And I hope that people do go to the website for the campaign and join the campaign. Do you have any parting words for our audience, Lisa and Susan? Remember that democracy demos means, you know, the people and that we are entering a really critical time for a democracy, really critical elections um, in the year ahead. And people really can make a difference, um, you know, we, we've highlighted groups that have um, taken action to protect their schools, um, various different ways that people can get involved um, at, at the local level. So I just um, want to leave on a message of hope that, um, you know, our democracy is worth fighting for. And, you know, I hope your listeners um, will get involved at, in their communities and, you know, help to build more resilient communities. I will just echo Susan because, you know, uh, I think I, I fear that there's a lot of 
apathy out there that is based on, you know, well, what can I do? You know, things are bad and I can't really do anything about it. Yeah, you can. And um, people have to get out and vote at every level. Go vote in your local elections. For heaven's sake, vote in the federal elections. Um, And also speak up about things. You know, it, it may seem like your voice can't do anything, but just like with this NHRI issue, the issues that get attention are the ones that people are talking to their elected officials about. The more they hear about an issue, the more they're going to care about it. Right. It's, if not me, then whom? <laughs> if not now, then when? Now is the time. And yes, there is hope. Well, um, thank you very much for your time and your insight today. I very much appreciate that. Thank you, Alexandra. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be with you. I hope you have found this podcast insightful and will join us next time as we explore more issues affecting our environment and human rights at home and around the world. For more materials on this issue, please go to our website, thegravity.fm.